So today our reading is going to be from John 11, and we're going to start at verse 17. If you want to follow that in the Pew Bibles, that's at page 1124. If you would not like to follow in the Pew Bibles and just listen to me, that is okay too. But I'll give you a moment. It says this, on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. And after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up and asked and quickly went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village and still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how loved him. But some said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Let's pray. Lord, we pray on this Resurrection Sunday that our hearts and our minds be ever tuned to your love and the power of your resurrection. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone, and happy Easter. I will say Easter is like my favorite day of the year. I'm not kidding. I woke up at 5 a.m. this morning. It's just like, it's <laughs> what I used to be like when I was a child. Apparently, Easter is the thing that excites me most now. Uh, in the church where I kind of grew up, we had this tradition where the person in the front would say, Alleluia, Christ is risen, and everyone would reply with, He is risen indeed, Alleluia, and like, I don't want to be the guy that has, does the whole I can't hear you thing, but you're supposed to say this with gusto and excitement. So, I'm going to say that. Hallelujah, Christ is risen. Hooray, well done, everyone. You're doing so well. I'm very impressed. 
For the last seven weeks throughout Lent, we've been looking at the seven I am statements of Jesus. Some of you will have a bookmark, which I may have mentioned once or twice. If you're watching us online and would like a bookmark, send me an email. I'll make sure you get a bookmark. We have a couple left over. We've looked at Jesus saying that he is the good shepherd. We've looked at Jesus saying that he is the gate or the door. We looked at Jesus saying that he is the light of the world. We've looked at Jesus saying that he is the vine. We've looked at Jesus saying that he is... Which one I said now, the bread of life, and we've looked at Jesus saying that he is the way and the truth and the life, and today, if you hadn't guessed, <laughs> we are talking about Jesus being the resurrection and the life. Today is the end of Lent. How many of you gave up something for Lent? How many of you have now taken or eaten or drunk whatever it is you gave up for Lent? Yeah, me too. <laughs> That was a rough 46 days, let me tell you. <laughs> uh, but Easter is when we celebrate things, and so it's nice to be able to celebrate all those things together. Thank you again to the Millers for the incredible breakfast. So they, let's, they hate it, but give them a round of applause anyway, because almost as miraculous as someone coming back from the dead is a meal at Wellspring going without any hitches. So <laughs> you guys pulled it off. Well done. As I say, Easter is my favorite service of the year because there is so much to celebrate. Uh, I've actually been here for four different Easter's, but this is only the second one we've had fully in, in person. So hello to the people online. If you're joining us for the fourth year online, good to see you. And hello to everyone that is here in person. But it's, it's good to have some energy in the room that I can kind of feed off of, you know. That and also, I gave up like pop for Lent and I've had a bunch of caffeine now, so this is a lot of energy coursing through me. <laughs> I did write this Easter sermon a week ago, which is very impressive because I'm not a very well prepared person. I tend to be quite last minute, but I also decided about five days ago that I hated that sermon. Um, <laughs> I decided it was too pretentious, so I threw it away. Uh, I decided pretension wasn't the cool of the day for Easter, but I may have swung a bit far in the other direction away from the academic and the pretentious because today's sermon is based on the 1992 video game Mortal Kombat. Yeah, there we go. Okay. I was going to say, like, does anyone get that reference? And apparently they do. Thanks, Yasha. I'm going to say this sermon is definitely not called Immortal Kombat. That would be lame. Uh, so anyway, Immortal Kombat. <laughs> Immortal Kombat, for those of you that aren't Yasha and do not know, uh, is a beat-em-up game that first came out in 1992. Uh, I quite like beat-em-up games. You, you just punch the other guy until one of you falls over. That's the entire game, really. Um, but it's also it's from 1992, so it looks terrible. It's like four pixels or something. Uh, but what was different about Mortal Kombat is at the end of uh, the match in Mortal Kombat, if you really wanted to humiliate your opponent, you could do what was called a fatality, <laughs> which is kind of gruesome and silly. You like pull their head off or something. But as I say, it was 1992. It wasn't that graphic. Um, but this is called a fatality. The other way that a Mortal Kombat game can end is if you are incredibly skilled and you just completely dominate your opponent, you get what is called a flawless victory. And it is with those two things in mind. <laughs> Today, inspired by the cosmic triumph of Jesus over death, 
and 1992's Mortal Kombat, I bring you <laughs> the fatality of Friday and the flawless victory of Sunday. <laughs> that, that warms my heart, thank you. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> I explained it, I feel. So let's let's begin with the fatality. Let's let's begin with death because that's kind of where sometimes we leave things as Christians. Lots of Christians really seem to like to focus on the fatality. They spend a lot of time focusing on the cross, uh, a lot of time focusing on violence. We humans in general I think are quite fascinated by violence. Horror movies are really popular. Violent action movies are really popular. And there are actually a lot of good things that can be gained from focusing on the cross. I'll talk to them a little bit later. But Jesus tells us that he is the resurrection and the life. And I think it is vital that we take Jesus at his word. There is not much more irony in the world than tunnel visioning on violence when talking and thinking about the Prince of Peace. It is easy to miss the flawless victory when we are stuck, stuck focusing on the fatality. If we are thinking that God needs violence to accomplish his victory, we are going to miss out. And this is something, and I want to be gentle here, and I do try to be gentle here, this is something that people even really close to Jesus did too. Well, I feel bad for picking on Peter, but I'm actually trying to be nice to Peter here. Peter is Jesus' closest disciple, the one who is closest to Jesus' side throughout his ministry. Jesus is one, uh, Peter is one who says, I, if they fall away, I'm going to be here. They might run away. I won't. I will die. I will kill for you, Jesus. I will do whatever it takes. However much blood needs to be shed to put you as king on that throne, I will do it. No matter how many Roman centurions I have to slay to get you to where you need to go, I'll do it. I'm by your side. And the empire is a understandable enemy. The empire has enslaved their friends and starved their families. And Peter says he will do whatever it takes to make that empire end. And a few hours after that promise, he does like mutilate a person coming for Jesus. So we can't fault him for his conviction. But that's not how Jesus' story goes. That is not how love wins. Jesus proclaims, I am the life, and the life does not do things that way. And as a result, Peter becomes unable to see how a victory is possible without his violent insurrection. It becomes impossible without those fatalities. And within just a few hours, denies knowing Jesus. Time and time again, all Jesus can see is the fatality. And in that courtyard, as he abandons Jesus and sees the victory of the empire and the defeat of the cross, we can't blame him. And so, yeah, I'm tempted to roll my eyes at Peter and go, come on, Jesus said he was the resurrection. Didn't you get the point there? But that's not really a thing people did. There wasn't a lot of precedent to base this on. Jesus had said he was the resurrection, but Peter had not seen that yet. And that's a call for all of us to be very gentle with those who have yet to see the power of the resurrection too. 
So we, we want to be sympathetic to Peter rather than judgmental. We want to be sympathetic to people who focus on violence instead of life, as hard as that can be. We need to focus on what the good there is anyway. We see Peter and his desire to be close to Jesus, no matter how misguided that may have been. Our hearts get to break with Peter when he feels unable to acknowledge just how much Jesus loves him and how much he loves Jesus back. And it's understandable because in that moment right there, Jesus is losing and the empire is mocking and hurting Jesus. And Jesus keeps on just forgiving them, recklessly forgiving them and telling Peter, you're not allowed to hurt them back. You don't get to do unto them as they do unto me. So I don't blame Peter for missing the point at all. Because it's really easy when you're stuck looking at the fatality. Peter misses that this is what that this is what part of what it means for Jesus to be the life too. That even in these moments of cruelty, we see what it is for Jesus to be the life, not just life at its most beautiful and most abundant, but life at its most desolate. The cross matters because every person crushed by injustice has an ally in Jesus. The cross matters because every person who has been broken-hearted by religious institutions has an ally in Jesus. The cross matters because every person who knows poverty or desertion or abuse has an ally in Jesus. But to only speak of the cross is only to speak of half the story. It's so much set up and it's not enough payoff. And so missing the point becomes almost inevitable. There's, there's a story that may or may not be true. I don't know if the story is true, but the point is true. So we're going to go with it. That uh, Charles Spurgeon, who was a famous preacher from back in the day, whenever that day was. Uh, and he gave some amazing Good Friday sermon uh, where he really talked about sin and death and hell and horror and all of these awful things and reminding people of their sin and the terrible things that they'd done. And his plan was that on Easter Sunday, just two days later, he was going to tell them, you know what, it's okay. Christ has risen. It's all been made right. He's redeemed it all. But then there was like some terrible tragedy in the congregation and a bunch of them died. And he's like, I never got to tell them the end of the story. So it's always important that we acknowledge the ending too. If the ending is good enough for Jesus to define himself, it must be good enough for us to define ourselves by as well. If the resurrection is necessary for God, then it must be necessary for our story too. Thanks, Ashley. It's getting a bit of feedback on this, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so the last thing I'll speak of the fatality is this that in order to recognize the grand and the cosmic scale of the resurrection and everything it means we need to recognize the grand and the cosmic scale of the crucifixion of that fatality on Friday too uh, one of my favorite theologians Jürgen Moltmann says that at the cross, it is the triumph of death. 
at the cross, the enemy, the blasphemer, the empire, the soldiers win. It is at the cross where Satan triumphs over God because God is dead. And he's right. But that's not where our story ends. So the rest of the day, I'm going to talk about the victory of Jesus. Because that's my favorite thing to talk about. Because you know what? Hallelujah, Christ is risen. Very good. There was a little bit of pretentiousness left from my last sermon. I'll talk about that. Uh, <laughs> apparently, I can't completely rid myself of it. There's this, like, theory of way of talking about Jesus and Jesus' victory called Christus Victor, uh, which really just means the victory of Christ or the triumphing of Christ. Uh, and I really like thinking about this a lot because it takes our gaze away from the defeat of Friday and moves our gaze onto the triumph of Sunday. It puts the resurrection front and center because it is in the resurrection that we truly see our flawless victory. That even though death and hell and Satan and the empire threw everything they could throw at Jesus, so much so that they could genuinely, earnestly say without irony that God is dead and we have killed him, that it wasn't enough. Because the resurrection changes everything, and Jesus being the resurrection changes everything. It's at the crucifixion we are faced with that cruel reality that God knows the pain of losing, knows what it's like to lose a child, that God knows exactly what death tastes like, that Jesus knows what it is like to feel abandoned, but the end is not the fatality, but the end is our flawless victory. Colossians 2 says that though it was Jesus that was disarmed by hell and empire, it was the power of Jesus' resurrection that disarmed them. Though it was Jesus that was made a spectacle by the empire and hell, it is the power of Jesus' resurrection that makes a spectacle of them. Though it was Jesus that was charged and condemned by hell and the empire, it is through the power of Jesus' resurrection that he charges and condemns them. And though it was Jesus that was nailed to a cross by hell and empire, through the power of the resurrection, they are the ones nailed to the cross. And Jesus stands triumphant forever. Hallelujah, Christ is risen. And so we want to shift our focus to remain here, celebrating the truth that there is no evil that will not be disarmed by the mighty Christ, that there is no cruelty that will not be made right by the wonderful Christ, that there is no sadness that will not be made untrue by the counselor Christ, that there is no sinner that will not be rescued by the redeeming Christ, that there is no empire that will not be overthrown by the spear, pierced, publicly executed, resurrected Christ. Dr. Cruz Ryan, or Jordan as some as we know him, <laughs> says that the resurrection is the single greatest act of civil disobedience in history because the empire sentenced Jesus to die and Jesus refused to stay dead. 
as long as hell made people blind, as long as the empire held people captive, the work of Jesus is incomplete. It was incomplete, but now it is changed forever because that is our flawless victory. Jesus' first promise in his earthly ministry was what? To open the eyes of the blind, to set the captives free. <laughs> and as a gentle reminder, rule captives to something. But Jesus makes good on his word, and it's not through violent insurrection, and it's not through military might or superiority. It's not through the death of his enemies, but by being the resurrection and the life leading to the death of death itself. Death had always had the final word. Death always has the final word. We, we looked in that reading today, which I realized I just used that one line from. But even there, just being close to death was enough to make Jesus weep. And, and some people think he weeps because, because he's just close to the person who has died. And some people think that he's weeping because <laughs> he's close to the people who are close to someone who's died and he feels their pain. And, and some people think that he's crying because he knows the act of raising Lazarus from the dead will inevitably lead to his own death. But he weeps regardless. Because death had the final word. And so if you need to weep now, that is okay. And know that Jesus weeps with you. And he'll weep with you for as long as you need him to. But God also promises that he will remove the tear from every eye because death does not have the final word anymore. 1 Corinthians 15, one of my favorite passages says this, For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom of God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. What I believe to be the greatest sermon ever written is based on this passage, and I want to read an extract from that here. It talks about Jesus' victory. It talks about the desolation of hell, and uh, it was preached 1,600 years ago, and some churches basically said, this is such a good sermon, we're going to preach it every Easter until Christ's return, and they still do, and I'm going to carry on that tradition too. John Chrysostom, 1,600 years ago, said this, Let no one fear death, for the death of our Savior has set us free. Jesus has destroyed death by enduring death. Jesus destroyed hell when he descended into it. He put hell into an uproar even as it tasted of his flesh. Hell was in an uproar, for it was destroyed. Hell is in an uproar, for it was annihilated. Hell is in an uproar, for it was made captive. Hell took a man and discovered God. Hell took earth and encountered heaven. 
hell took what it saw and was overcome by what it could not see. O death, where is your sting? O hell, where is your victory? Christ is risen, and you, O death, are annihilated. Christ is risen, and the evil ones are cast down. Christ is risen, the angels rejoice. Christ is risen, and life is liberated. Christ is risen, and the tomb is emptied of its dead. To him be glory and power forever and ever. It's done. It is finished. Death does not have the final word anymore. And I think some of us still live with a fear that it does. We spend our times fearing for those who might not know how much Jesus loves them or whether they recognize how much they love him back. But to all of those places and to all of those people, we declare that death does not have the final word. It does not and it cannot because death is the enemy and the enemy has been defeated in a flawless victory. When we declare that Jesus is risen, this is both a present reality and a future hope. We acknowledge the state of the universe changed forever, but we acknowledge that we're not there yet. We acknowledge that we were slaves and now we're not, but we recognize that the chains of injustice still bind so many. We acknowledge that death used to win and now it doesn't, but there are still so many who are hurting. But we recognize that hell kept those captives, but now it cannot, because its gates have been shattered by the resurrected Jesus. Because of who Jesus is and because of Jesus says he is. Jesus is the shepherd who will die for us. He is the gate that will protect us. He is the bread that feeds us and the vine that connects us. He is the light that guides us and the truth that enlightens us. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He is the one who has torn the gates of hell. He has set the captives free. And this is our flawless victory. Hallelujah. Christ is risen. Amen. When, uh, when it's tempting to stray away from the power and the truth of your love and your resurrection, we pray that you bring us back. For those of us who stumble, stumble and struggle to see, we pray we be surrounded with people that help bring us back to. Lord, we pray we not be people focused on fatalities, but instead reflecting the truth of your love and your flawless victory. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.